Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today, I am very happy to have on the show an old friend. We go back to the heydays of the Integral Institute together back 2006, 2007. And he is someone who I and many regard as one of the very most smartest people in all of Integral land. Welcome, Sean Esbjorn Hargens. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Yeah. yeah, I'm excited to see where we go. Yeah, me too. Uh, so let me, before we get into the topic, just tell my listeners a little bit about you. I know many know you and know of you for sure. But uh, in addition to anchoring many of our Integral Institute seminars, Sean went on to produce four very influential integral theory conferences in California with uh, 500 plus people. I went to a couple of them, very impressive. Uh, and, you know, the, the uh, karma of those conferences just continues to move through the cosmos. Yeah. Uh, you've gone on to found your company, Meta Integral, which is a leadership and consulting company that works to apply integrative principles to organizations. You've written a number of books, the most recent being Meta Theory for the 21st Century. Yep. And you are now in Edinburgh, Scotland, right? Yeah, yeah, I've been here one month. Um, it's been blue skies and very cold. Oh, uh, nice. I love Edinburgh. And you have the family and there for six months. Yeah, my wife and my daughters, we've been on a year-long European gap year, um, kind of traveling around, but spending most of our time in Ireland and now Scotland. Yeah, cool. Well, you're living an adventuresome life in many ways, Sean. <laughs> I know. It keeps unfolding in ways that I would never have predicted. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and, and, and the reason we're actually talking here is that I received an email from you. It was an email yep. you were prom promoting your new organization that you founded yep. called the Institute of Exo Studies, yep. which caught my eye. Yep. And I clicked on it. And it turns out that you are launching this institute and your in initial invitation is to what you're calling the Exo Studies Master's Course, yep. which starts in September. Yeah. Subhead, Exploring the Psychological, Sociological, and Scientific Implications of Living in a, in a Multidimensional Multiverse. Yeah. Which... <laughs> Kept me clicking. Yeah, it doesn't get more integral than that. <laughs> yeah. But then I, I got inside, I got, I got what you're really talking about here. And because you, I think you let your hair down a little and you build it as an integral UFO ET geek coming out party. Right. And yeah. I love that. And I just want to read a, a paragraph that you wrote that just sort of introduces yourself at the topic because it yeah. really touched me. So you say, this is the course I've wanted to teach for years, and finally I'm going to do it, with three exclamation points. <laughs> for over a decade, I've been a closeted UFO ET geek, ET being extraterrestrial, reading hundreds of books and watching thousands of hours of videos, interviews, documentaries, movies, all in an attempt to make sense of my own experiences and intuitions around this fascinating and confusing topic. If there is ever a place where multiple perspectives run amok, bumping into each other and generally creating chaos, it is around aliens and the crafts they pilot. <laughs> Over the last few years, I've begun to talk with integralists about these topics, and I've been continually surprised to discover many of them have had their own powerful and evocative experiences with UFOs, ETs, and paranormal realities. And um, that got me between the eyes. So <laughs> not that I've had any of that, but right. I'm interested in that. And yeah. I somehow have the same intuition maybe that you did that this feels like next. This feels like something I want to explore. Yeah. So, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what's going on here, Sean? <laughs> Great. Well, you know, in college, I tried to triple major. I tried to major in philosophy, psychology, and biology. 
because I wanted to study animal consciousness. And those were the three main disciplines that you really have to, you know, be plugged into in order to make sense of, you know, what can we say about animal consciousness? So I was trying to be an integralist, you know, way back then, you know, as many of us on this journey have our stories of how we try and bring it all together. Um, and, and then I discovered Ken's work and, and I became just interested in consciousness in general, right? Human consciousness, the evolution of consciousness, um, including animal consciousness and focus on integral ecology and the planet and, and really love this idea of not just being world centric, but being planet centric, right? Where, you know, planet centrism, as we, Michael Zimmerman and I talk about in integral ecology is embracing all of humanity plus the biosphere, plus the natural world, right? And finding the right integration and balance between nature and culture. Um, so, you know, I think I've always just loved the mystery of the world, you know, and love information and love integral because it allows me to hold a lot of pieces. And, you know, I got my doctorate in philosophy. And, you know, there's really no other topic um, like UFOs or extraterrestrials where all the key philosophical issues come alive very quickly, you know, like what, what's it mean to be human? You know, are we alone? You know, like, like all the, you know, like these incredible things about what's perception, you know, what are ethics, you know, like, and so I think there's been a number of things kind of driving my path forward along these lines, you know, so initially like 15 years ago, when I first started reading Whitney Schreiber's book, you know, communion with that, you know, evocative, bald, you know, extraterrestrial female um, on the cover that so many people remark on. And as a side parallel, it's kind of interesting. People say the same thing about brief history of everything. <laughs> like that there's something about the cover of those books that just grabs a lot of people and, and they, they don't know why, but they're grabbing it off the shelf and buying it. So and you're talking about the book communion. Okay, yeah, so exactly. Yeah, out. thank you for naming the title. Yeah, so Communion by Whitney Stryber. Um, so I read that just out of my integral interest in all things, you know, in the world, you know, and in the universe. And like, of all you know, things like, bald. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. Um, so I read that and it was intense. I was like, wow, this is hardcore. Um, so I plowed through all of Whitney's books, you know, in like a you know, few month period. And that kind of set me on a path of being, you know, exploring this topic. And, you know, I think one of the things that really struck me about reading Whitney Stryber's books is in that process, I learned that after he wrote Communion, he and his wife got around 140,000 letters from people saying, wow, I just read your book. And I have to tell you, I, I haven't told anyone this, but something very similar happened to me. Now, when 140,000 people write you a letter, <laughs> you know, along those lines, like that caught my attention. It's like, what the is going on? You know, like, is this just like mass delusion? Is this like, like kind of some Jungian archetypal thing? Or like, you know, like, what, like, like, you know, how is it that his book would open the floodgates like that? Um, so my interest was peaked and, you know, I kept reading and exploring. And, you know, then kind of in my path with integral, you know, I've really been exploring, you know, how to integrate the growth, subtle and causal realms. And, and I've often been intrigued by the subtle realms and how, you know, in integral, sometimes there's a feeling I and others have that integral doesn't fully articulate the subtle realms as much as it could. And as much and as not, let me stop you just for a second, because yeah. I have a lot of newbies that yeah. watch this Great. and listen. Uh, just give us a little brief uh, explanation of the gross, subtle, and causal realms. Yeah, good. Yeah, and please feel free to um, have me stop and fill in bits. So, you know, these are the three major states that Wilbur identifies as being, you know, a core element of reality that we have to include if we're going to have an integral map, integral approach. And, you know, the the vast majority of contemplative traditions um, point to these three major states um, in, in their teachings and in their um, practices and so forth. And, and they also map onto the cycle of, you know, waking consciousness, you know, sleeping, dreaming, and then deep dreamless sleep. Um, but essentially the growth state is, you know, physical body, you know, energy, you know, our five senses um, and just kind of what we would generally think of as, you know, 
everyday consensual reality. Um, the subtle realm and the subtle states are energetic, emotional, um, uh, kind of psychedelic, um, you know, where people, you know, shamanic states, um, vision quests. Energies. Um, energies, Mental. yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and then causal is timeless and spaceless, you know, no identity, you know, kind of, you know, uh, you know, often leads into forms of non-duality, but it's the void, it's open, it's blank, it's pregnant, it's, it's nameless. Um, and so those are three major. It's full and empty. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's like all these paradoxical ways to try and point to it because it's, it exceeds, you know, it's the Tao that cannot be named. Right. Um, and so, you know, Ken's, you know, done a lot to really, you know, articulate the causal and the non-dual and, and he makes room for the subtle. But there's been a lot of integral practitioners I've talked with over the years who are drawn to exploring the subtle more and have struggled with like how to do that in the context of integral because sometimes it feels like integral downplays it and it says, you know, just get through that and get on to the good stuff, the causal and the non-dual, right? Yeah. And, and that's also in the Buddhist teachings, right? A lot of the traditions are kind of anti-subtle um, where they see it as a distraction, it'll take you off the course of enlightenment and don't, don't go down those rabbit holes, you know, just stay on the straight and narrow, right? Um, so there's kind of this movement of kind of revitalizing and exploring the subtle and, um, you know, and kind of, you know, doing that in a spiritual way. So that's been part of my path is working with um, the subtle realms. Um, and, and in that space, um, you, you know, there's astral travel, there's, you know, um, shamanic journeying, there's working with archetypal images and energies there's, um, you know, working with, you know, like as an ecologist, central ecologist, um, also do work with earth energies and like dowsing and, you know, so, so there's a lot of ways that you can kind of explore the subtle realm and subtle energies. Um, and in that process, you know, I've had a, a number of my own experiences that kind of left me a bit speechless and kind of wondering like, all right, what's going on here? <laughs> like, you know, this feels like it's, you know, it's extraterrestrial. It's, um, it's, 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 it's something different than what I'm finding in my Buddhist, you know, work or in, you know, even my shamanic work or, you know, so. Um, so this would be some second person, I, thou kind of connection. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, um, and, and not like, you know, a full-blown abduction kind of experience, um, you know, but, you know, in meditations, um, in, you know, different um, journeys, um, you know, different ways of, of working with mind and awareness, um, different images, different intuitions, different communications, different kinds of, you know, just data points, right? It's like, like, you don't know what any of this means, right? You know, it's hard to really, you know, put your finger on and say, well, this is what that was. Mm -hmm. But they were experiences that made me realize that we live in a multidimensional world, right? And so, so I started shifting from kind of my focus on integral as like my word of choice to this word multidimensionality. And just realizing that, like, there are many more layers. Um, time and space is much more dynamic than we often realize. Um, and, and so as I started exploring multidimensionality, um, and then I started talking with more integralists, I started to discover that a lot of well-known integralists, well, many of whom you know, <laughs> many of whom many, you know, would know that are, you know, well-known in kind of different integral circles, Basically, as I was kind of coming out and kind of putting myself on the line and saying, hey, you know, I've had some experiences kind of like this, you know, like, I don't know what to make of it. They would say, well, you know, I've had an experience very similar to that or kind of related to that. And here's what it is. Some of them were abduction-like experiences. Some were full I-thou, you know, um, interacting with different beings, you know, and so well, there Here's where the distinction of, of gross and subtle comes in handy, because it's one thing to say that one has a, an experience in the subtle realm of other intelligences. I, yeah. I don't have any problem with that at all. Right. It's where the claims of the gross come in. Yeah. Where it's like, this is physically happening. I was physically abducted. I was met in physical space, an alien. Sort that out for us. Yeah. So at this point, 
the the people I've talked with, I don't believe they were claiming a physical encounter. It was a subtle realm encounter. Okay. And I think this is one of the misunderstandings. I think many of the abduction experiences that are written about, you know, or documented in case studies, I think uh, a vast majority of them are, are, are subtle realm um, primarily, though there can be physical realm aspects, right? And then that's where we bump into kind of our scientific orientation and um, materialism. You know, yeah, materialism and just, you know, di different ontological claims. Um, but so, but, and this is again coming back to my sense of a multi dimensional world of like kind of starting with, like you're saying, in the subtle realm, there's all kinds of intelligences. Those sometimes can show up in the form of, you know, a goddess or an archetype or a, a being or a lost relative. And those experiences might ontologically be some of those things, or they might just be how you're processing those energies and intelligences in ways that make sense for you in that moment, right? You know, so there can be a lot of different ways of interpreting it, understanding it. Um, and, you know, but so I started, you know, just doing more research. I just was like, reading this, reading that, you know, and I read a wide range of stuff, right? Everything from like the hardcore science to like the way far out crazy shit, you know? So really like just taking it all in and kind of, and using an integral frame to kind of make sense of it. And one of the things that, you know, struck me, two things. Um, one was as I, you know, read these 300 books, you know, what stood out was the amount of evidence that something pretty profound is going on from, and the evidence coming from all kinds of different zones, if you will, like integral zones. So the integral methodological pluralism, different quadrants, you know, different inside or outside perspectives of those quadrants that the, the amount of evidence was just coming in from all corners of the, the quadratic universe. Yeah. Th um, there's one line you wrote in your, your, your letter where you said, it is arguably the most intellectually credible topic with the most cultural taboo surrounding it. Yeah. And yeah. a phenomena with so many people attesting to it, credible people, and it's simultaneously denied by mainstream consensual reality. Yeah. And so this is my entry point right there, Jeff, is, is that paradox, that juxtaposition. Because as a trained philosopher, I, and as an integralist, I'm drawn to that kind of, that paradox of like, how could this be so intellectually credible? I mean, there's so many well-respected, upstanding scientists and, and individuals, intellectuals in our global community who are saying this is a worthy topic. And yet it is, is, it is like the kiss of death um, professionally to like even go near it. Um, and so having an integral frame has helped me tune into the shadow of like, okay, how is it that this topic has so much shadow around it? Right. You know, like, why is it so taboo? Like that in itself starts to, for me, starts to become evidence that there's something to this. Yeah. Because, because it's so repressed. Yeah. Right. It's so taboo. You don't have shadow without light shining yeah. on something. Yeah. So it's, so it's like, so just following the smoke trail of the shadow, you know, that combined with the intellectual validity of it, combined with how many credible people with nothing but something to lose, who have come out and, and said something or defended some aspect of the phenomena, saying, I had this experience, right? You think of John Mack at Harvard, right? Totally putting his career on the line. He basically got kicked out and then got lawyers to help him, you know, get back in, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and he's just one of hundreds, hundreds. Well, even you know, humanity moves forward heresy by heresy. Right, yeah. You know, in a way, and this... This does challenge academia and, you know, basically scientific materialism. Which it is challenges everything. Like, if you think about what happened when Galileo, you know, put out his view of the earth and the sun. If you think about what Darwin did, like, those pale in comparison to the upside down world we would find ourselves in. And I believe right. we'll find ourselves in when some level of affirmation of a UFO or UAP, you know, unidentified aerial phenomenon, um, ET reality gets acknowledged on, on a larger scale. Yeah. Um, and if you just take a few, and also we have exoscience exploding, right? So if you think of just these few facts, right? So right now there are between 100 billion and 200 billion galaxies, 
all right? So let's just say 100 billion. There's 100 billion galaxies. Um, one of those galaxies is ours, the Milky Way. In our Milky Way, there are 100 billion stars, right? So this is just 100 billion stars in one galaxy out of 100 billion galaxies. Of those 100 billion stars, the conservative estimate, conservative now, is that there are 20 billion Earth-like planets, 20 billion in our galaxy, the Milky Way, 20 billion. Now they're Earth-like, not Neptune-like, not Uranus-like, not Mercury or Venus-like, Earth-like, right? So, so we've just discovered about you know, 3,000 confirmed exoplanets in the last 10 years with another 3,000 kind of waiting for confirmation. They're called candidates, right? right? So if you just start with that, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, holy smokes. Like, how could we be the only intelligent species? Or only, you know, even like, we're now at the point where there's a case to be made that there's micro life on, you know, Titan, you know, or Europa, the, in the moons around Saturn and, um, uh, Jupiter. Yeah, it, it's certainly no stretch, even for a yeah. scientific mind, to right. think that the conditions that Earth uh, had, if replicated, are going to create life in the same way yeah. Earth did. Yeah. Uh, so the, the question is, why is it so underground, or, or, or why, is, uh, why haven't they just contacted us? You know, why haven't they just put up a billboard in the sky or I don't know what? Yeah, I knew you would ask that because this is kind of like where the conversation often goes. And it has different versions. One of it is, why haven't they landed on the White House lawn? Right. You know, like, right. But, and isn't but, this, am I thinking, right, Fermi's paradox? Right. Yeah. The yeah. idea that if they're, you know, if, if you just roll the dice, you're going to get planet after planet. And, yeah. you know if you look at where we've come in a thousand years, if, yeah. if somebody just gets a thousand years or a 2000 years head start, right. yeah. imagine a million years head start. What yeah. the fuck are they up to? Right. You know? Yeah. Maybe, so, so my, my pet theory is, is that just as we are interfering with, we, we have, we have a, a, a sort of a consciousness now where we yeah. don't want to unnecessarily interfere with ecosystems even right. that little island off of india yeah. with those prehistoric people right. you know that yeah. they don't want to bother us or they, they want to leave us be it, it would be immoral to interfere yeah. so i don't know yeah I mean, so there's a number of key things here you know so one is there's a lot of reasons to believe they have contacted us that 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 there actually is a, a deep interaction that's happening right and there's a number of reasons why that interaction is kind of obscured for us um one is just this notion of from star trek the prime directive right that you know this non-interference rule so so that's one layer um the the other is that um if you look at the history of ufo sightings you know there there's good reason to believe that it goes all the way back to you know you know the beginning and, and there's a lot of, you know, different kinds of data points that are suggestive of that. Um, but something seems to have shifted with the nuclear age, that as soon as we develop nuclear weapons, they seem to show up more. And the amount of sightings around nuclear installments and the ways our nuclear um, arms have been disarmed um, in ways that are inexplicable, um, that it was almost as if when we let off the two bombs in Japan, that that amount of energy release sent signals throughout multiple dimensions and, 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 and other modes of intelligence took notice and said, all right, we need to go check out what's going on over there because they're getting to the point where they can start messing with our reality and those adolescent earthlings need to, you know, we need to keep an eye on them. You know, yeah. so it seems to be something very interesting well, around. I would all so love to think so. Yeah. You know, that somebody was looking out for us. Well, you know, the idea is that, you know, the good ones and the bad ones came, right? So that just as with humanity, you know, there's a wide range of, of um, species of, of ETs, um, and they have all kinds of different agendas, many of which we're not clear on, or it's not very clear what those are. So there, there's a range of benevolence and, you know, kind of, you know, nasty critters, if you will. 
right? And, and that kind of makes sense. Like, why would we expect you know <laughs> much different? Well, like, actually, to me, it doesn't make sense. And yeah. here's why: yeah. uh, if I look at the evolution of consciousness, yeah. it is the circle of things and beings worthy of moral consideration just relentlessly continues to grow. So I can't imagine just using the quadrants yeah. that any life form would become technologically proficient enough to, you know, yeah. get on the ground, uh, would not have a consciousness that was uh, benevolent. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, though my sense is that it, it has happened, and though I, I totally get like what you're saying. And here's one piece in, in the in the literature around the subtle realms. There's this notion that there's these different dimensions, like fourth dimension, fifth dimension, and so forth. And you know, different people have different models or maps of how many dimensions there are. A lot of them agree loosely around the following point: that. Humans, as we understand ourselves now, are primarily in the third dimension, which is a gross realm dimension. And that in the fourth dimension is the, the kind of the, a primary subtle realm where good and evil both exist right. in that space. Right. You're making and, me think, oh, go keep, keep going. Yeah. When, when you get to fifth dimension, that fifth dimension is primarily defined by love. Um, and then it goes up and, and kind of finer grades of love and light and, you know, oneness and, and unity, right? So that in the subtle realms, there, there is this fourth dimension that is polarized. Mm -hmm. um, and, that, and, and so there, there are beings and species on other planets who have gone down a bad technological path um, and, and evolved. And I think some of, you know, Ken's own arguments about lines and levels and stuff, you know, could be applied to this that they're, they're incapable of evolving past a certain point, but they are able to go beyond the third dimension and into the fourth dimension. And what a lot of the UFO phenomena seems to be able to do is move back and forth between the subtle and the gross realm, right? That they, they materialize and dematerialize, and somehow there's an ability working with time and space to move in and out of those phases, kind of like particle wave dynamics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so I think this is where... Your point is, is true, that on a, on a big meta scale, what you're saying I think is accurate. Mm -hmm. But I think when we look at the data and we look at what people are claiming, and, and people who seem to be largely credible, mm -hmm. um, that they're painting a more complex cosmology that makes room for how there could be um, you know, beings that have interstellar travel technology, but whom don't yet have world-centric or cosmic-centric awareness behind yeah. that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah that's still going to be a hard one for me to swallow. But yeah. uh, it, it does occur to me that there could be such a group yeah. that might be able to do liftoff into this fourth dimension that you're talking right. about uh, without having it be in the gross realm at all. Right. You yeah. know, they, they just, you know, it's like the Tibetans sitting around right. in caves, yeah. who, you know, soared into the stratosphere spiritually. Right. But yeah. as Ken often says, technologically, they were yak butter. <laughs> right. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think you're right that there, there are certain species for whom that's been the trajectory mm -hmm. where they're, they're, they've evolved into, you know, using subtle realm practices um, that have enabled a certain kind of cosmic exploration. Yeah but that they're not necessarily in, in nuts and bolts craft. Okay, so let me catch up just sort of in the feel, the yeah. felt nature of this. So yeah. this fourth dimension, all of a sudden, I'm loosed from Earth. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's, I, I, I'm, I find myself in a matrix of subtle dimensions yeah. that are not limited to this planet. I mean, I, I might have a sort of a gravitational pull to this planet. Right but I can go all over the place, right? And time yeah. and space no longer uh, limit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so when you, and this is where, you know, this is one of the streams of evidence that I came across. If you read the um, near-death experience literature and the out-of-body experience literature and the Very life between, what's that? Very convincing. Yeah, and the life between life work, right? You know, Michael Newton and Linda Backman and so forth. Um, what you find is, you know, 
in that literature, people who describe through those states and those situations um, having um, extraplanetary encounters, right? It's not the majority of experiences. Most of them are more kind of earthbound in nature. But, you know, Robert Monroe in his books, you know, the further you read in his stuff, he starts going to other planets. He starts having encounters with different types of intelligence um, associated with different planetary systems or just in the subtle realms, right? And so, and then you like look at the Indian um, spiritual traditions. A lot of them talk about how you can go to other planets through astral travel, through meditations, right? And, and interact with these different intelligences, right? So you find, and then you have the DMT material, Right, where people are using DMT and the work by you know Rick Strassman. You're talking the, the drug DMT. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which and is so a psychedelic, they, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they like are mainlining this DMT, and they're popping out and having these really intense, you know, extraterrestrial encounters, right? So, and then shamans often do too. And I've even talked with shamans who basically will acknowledge extraterrestrial realities, but basically say, "But that's not my thing. I'm not interested in that. I just ignore them." Right. You know, like because I'm, I'm focused more on the spirits and the plants or the spirits, you know, and around our local space. Right. So so you find across all of those inner roads to outer space. Right. All those kind of inner technologies, people that are credible reporting their experiences that are describing that they're having otherworldly or offworldly experiences of one sort or another. And so that becomes a very interesting body of literature and evidence pointing to there's something going on here. Yeah, it does. And yet I have to say my uh, bullshit alarms go off because I know how people are. Yeah. You know, and how we want that. It's, it's, you know, it's the impulse around religion and, you know, and actually non-scientific things that science comes in to sort of tease apart what's provable about your claims and right. what isn't. And, right. and, and, and what science wants to do then is say, okay, what isn't provable, we're just going to explain away. Right. Well, and this is where I'm I think... I'm tired of doing <laughs> explaining it away. I, I get that you could explain it away as delusion and projection and all of these things. But I'm interested in if we don't do that, where are we at? You know, where we actually take all of this stuff seriously. Yeah. Here's one of the challenges with this domain. On earlier in our conversation, I talked about how much evidence there is, right? Um, and I've arrived at that through my own process, right? And we, that's debatable, and we can talk about what that is. Um, at the same time, I'm also aware that there's more non-evidence in the field than like anywhere else. So it's like you have two big piles of both. Right, so you have a big pile of bullshit, and you have a big pile of stuff that you yes. really should take a second look at. Yes. Right. Um, and and so that's what makes it so hard to like sort through, right? Like, how do you navigate that? Um, you know. And the other thing is, this is why an integral approach I think is quite fascinating when it's pointed at this topic, because any one strand of the evidence, like I just pointed to, I mean, the, you know, basically what I would call the astral travel reports, you know. That, and it comes from four or five different types of traditions or, or modes of travel, you know, whether it's meditation or ayahuasca or out-of-body experience, right? So that's one strand. And you could just kind of go, oh, yeah, whatever. Or a mental illness, you know. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. But keep but when going. You, when you take an integral methodological pluralist approach and you start looking at the kinds of evidence that come from all the quadrants, from all the zones, and you realize that every one of them basically offers a mountain of evidence, right? So you have experiencers, right? Um, and, and you can critique the, high, you know, the whole issue around hypnosis, right? But there are enough people who have had memory recall who got that not through hypnosis, but just through it, the memories kind of coming back after the trauma of the experience and that those stories are coherent and they echo much of what's discovered in the hypnotic process. So yes, you know, we can critique the hypnotic, you know, methodology and its limitations and its challenges, right? But so, so this is the piece around the integral. It's like when you start plotting the different sources of evidence, um, the whistleblowers, you know, the military, corporate, and political whistleblowers, you know, that have come forward in the last 10 years, right? 
with a lot to lose, and many of them actually have lost a lot as a result of coming forward, um, who say, I worked for you know, Lockheed Martin, you know, I worked for the government, I worked for this black budget project, right? There are over 500 of those people who've okay. come forward with you know, half hour to two hour testimony describing, and when you listen to them, the level of specificity of what they're describing like, and what they're saying, like, it's, there's a lot of sincerity and it's very believable. Now, of course, you know, we still can critique, you know, witnesses and say, well, you know, like, you know, right. So, but then when you look at those astronomical facts I just gave about how many, you know, planets there are, how many galaxies, right. You know, you look at the Vatican, the fact that the Vatican has come out with a pro ET position for the last 10 years, right. And that they're basically saying they're out there and, you know, we're going to start positioning the Catholic faith to, to be in a, a mode of receptivity so that if and when there is contact, we can easily do an about face and, and embrace that reality without it disrupting our religious orientation, right? So, so they've done a lot of good work around preparing themselves um, in, in that sense. And so that in itself is interesting. Yeah, um, it is. I mean, I, I think it was you who sent me an article out of the New Yorker yeah. Uh, called have, have Aliens Found Us, a Harvard right. astronomer on the mysterious interstellar object Oumuamua. Yeah, so this guy is the head of Harvard's astronomy um, you know, um, department, and he's, he's digging in and saying the data suggests that this interstellar object was likely a, a, a light sail, which basically is like kind of solar-powered you know, um, alien craft. Um, and, and he's getting, you know, like John Mack, getting attacked left and right and dismissed. And yet this is like one of the smart, arguably one of the smartest people on the planet. <laughs> yes, exactly. He's, his name's uh, Avi Loeb. He's the chair of yep. Harvard's astronomy department. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Then you look at the Freedom of Information Act, right? And there's literally been over 10,000 documents, classified documents have been released Many of them came out in the 70s before they kind of shifted the rules and kind of got a little more of a clamp on it. Um, but 10,000 FIOA documents that attest to um, UFO um, interest by our different intelligence agencies and the reports and the concerns and the you know, ways they've been dealing with it, right? So, so it's, not, it's not a conspiracy theory to say the government's covering something up. What they're covering up is not totally clear. But Do you think they are, there, there are things that they know that they're not telling us? The evidence very clearly says yes. You think I mean, they're like, telling Trump? Well, and here's the thing. There's been a number of um, good archival researchers who have gone through all the presidents and basically written books saying which presidents were briefed in, which ones were not, um, which ones knew something, which ones likely didn't. Um, you know, presidents are seen as a four to eight year, you know, issue. So not all of them have a need to know. Um, some of the earlier ones in the 40s and 50s and 60s um, seem to have were more in the know because of certain things that happened. Um, there's also a book that documents over 70 crash retrievals. We often think of Roswell as like the one and only, you know, and maybe there's another one. But there have been almost over 100 documented crash retrievals, and not all of them we're able to confirm, but it just is another data point that's, you know, pointing that these are credible witnesses that are claiming that something went down in this part of Texas, something went down in this part of Russia, something went down in this part of Brazil, and the CIA flew in, you know, roped it off and did this and that, right? So we can't always confirm what actually happened, but there is evidence that suggests something happened and we're not knowing about it, um, or it's not visible to us as the general public. And a lot of people point out that most of the UFO sightings, and get this, there are 30, on average, 30 credible UFO sightings a day in the US alone that are reported, right? That are not a bird, not a balloon, like, like that are genuinely unidentified aerial phenomenon that cannot be explained away. So, so that's a lot. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the one that haunts me is yeah. from my ex, who yeah. is uh, one of the most grounded people I know, period. Just yeah. that he, he does not go off into fantasy land. And he told me that he and his previous partner were driving on the freeway. And this wasn't subtle. Yeah. This was yeah. a UFO 
parked along the side of the road and there were scores of cars that had pulled over to look at it. Yeah. And, this is and that happened as far now. What I know is that he believes that happened in real life. Yeah. And, and Jeff, when you look at how many people have some version of that experience, it's in the millions that have a, a physical encounter with a craft. And a lot of those crafts leave trace elements. And there's been research done on the burn marks and they've analyzed the soil and they've found all kinds of, you know, anomalies and it's weird. It doesn't make sense. Right. And so, so again, it's like the evidence shows us that something happened that we can't explain, but you know, what exactly was it? We have the eyewitness testimony. There are tons of multiple witness um, encounters that are extremely credible. So this isn't just one or two people having an experience. This is like, you know, like John Mack went to Zimbabwe to interview a group of children in, who encountered a craft that landed in the playground and four or five beings came out and interacted with them. And like the children had this whole experience, like 60 of them. And, and then, you know, like that's just one example, right? And when you see John Mack interviewing the children, like it's powerful. It's like, whoa, like what the hell is going on? All right. So, so just to juxtapose that, yeah. it was not that long ago. I, I lived in Boulder. So it was in the last 30 years. Uh, there was a series of sightings at the Mother Cabrini Shrine up on I-70, which is a, yeah. a, a um, Catholic uh, little monastery statue. It's a shrine to the Mother yeah. Cabrini. And that the heavens opened and the Virgin Mary appeared. And there was yeah. 30,000 people who yeah. would go and see the Virgin Mary appear. And yeah. then that sort of petered out. And, you know, I don't know what to think. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to think. You know, until I have some kind of, again, what's, what's juicy and interesting to me, because I don't have to unbelieve anything, if right. you know, yeah. is um, the idea that there are consciousness, that there yeah. are beings, actually. I mean, uh, I did an interview with Brian Belitzos. I don't know if you yeah. know him. He's, oh, uh, yeah, we have the, we've had many UFO ET conversations. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Well, he, he, we, I t talked to him about um, the Urantia book. Right, yeah. And the cosmology, you know, evolutionarily based, I must say, and it yeah. appealed to me for that reason. Yeah. The cosmology of serpents <sighs> and angels and this one and that one, and that there is this whole sort of world that is not, you know, in a way, planet, it is planet-based, but it's, you know, transplanetary. Yeah. And, and, you know, communication and movement is possible. And that turns me on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, powerful vision, the Urantia book. And, you know, when I first kind of started getting into this literature and reading it, I was very drawn to the UFO ET hypothesis, as it's often called. Um, where I'm at now is that that's just one layer of a much more bizarre set of realities, right? So you were asking about the, you know, the, you know, the, the Mother, Mother Cabrini shrine. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, if you look at um, the, the book, the hunt for a skinwalker and the, what happened there in, in the Utah basin um, and all the money that um, Bob Bigelow, you know, um, big, you know, billionaire space guy, you know, put into researching the phenomenon that was happening there, that you have these examples of basically what I would call like a portal site, right? There's some interdimensional. You say this is a, an actual site in Utah that. Yeah. So there's a ranch there and there's been a history of paranormal experiences that have involved um, UFOs, um, orbs, a lot of it's orbs. A lot of UFOs are not um, silver disc crafts, a lot of the sightings are orbs and orbs that seem to be under intelligent control, orbs that split into two, orbs that, you know, are dynamic, some are small, some are big. Um, but so in the, the Hunt for Skinwalker, they, they're looking at the UFO sightings, they're looking at the orbs, they're looking at um, the different um, mysterious monsters, you know, basically cryptozoology. The house and the ranch had poltergeist activities literally like shovels disappearing um, and then reappearing and like places that were impossible for them. How did that happen? So literally like a, a dematerialization and a rematerialization of these objects, um, you know, and that happened many times and they have it all documented, right? 
Um, Bob Bigelow brought in a scientific team that worked on that ranch nonstop for you know many years, um, documenting. Bob all Bigelow this. is this billionaire who's into yeah. this. Okay. Yeah, and and part of the challenge was none of the phenomenon repeated itself under conditions that allowed them to get scientific data. And so this is part of the challenge of, of why we need a post-positivist um, model of science to better grapple with the phenomena, because the phenomena is not conducive to our current materialistic um, methodology of scientific inquiry. And so it's, it's somehow is outside of that box. Um, even though there's aspects of the phenomena that we study through those boxes, and but to get to the real heart of it, it's, it somehow transcends that. Um, and part of the reason why, and this is one of the great things about Jeff Kripal's work with Whitney Stryber in their book, The Supernatural, is the phenomenon appears to be both objective in a very, very objective way, subjective in a very, very subjective way, both subjective and objective at the same time, and neither subjective and objective. So the phenomena somehow is like all four of those possibilities, right? So it, it makes our sure. notion of particle wave look like, you know, a, a, some easy equation. Like it, it's much more bizarre. And I like to say the truth is stranger than science fiction. Oh, like, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, come on. I mean, even just to start at square one, here <laughs> we are. Right. right. You know, what the fuck? Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you take a big mess of hydrogen, leave it alone for 13.8 billion yeah. years, and you end up with our conversation. Here's a funny anecdote that, that I think makes an important point. Um, when I lived in Africa, I lived in Chad, you know, sub Sahara Desert, super dry. 130 degrees, you know, during certain periods of the year, like horrible hot. And, and I had this little patch of dirt behind my mud hut. And my mom sent me seeds to plant a garden. And I just thought, yeah, right. You know, as if any of the, you know, but I had a lot of time on my hands. So I was like, all right, I'll plant these, I'll water them. I'll see what happens. Um, I had an amazing garden. Like life wants to happen. It does. Right. Like even under horrible conditions, like if you just even look ocean at our planet, vents. you know, these yeah, exactly. acidic ocean vents. Yeah, exactly. That's my point is that like even under the most non-life conducive environment is able to produce life, right? Yeah. So no, life and our, our science is showing us that, um, you know, so why would we not assume that in all of those, you know, 20 billion Earth-like planets, that there aren't five, <laughs> there aren't 10. Um, and even it might not be life as we know it. This is the other thing. A lot of our modeling and assumptions are based on carbon-based, you know, water-based, you know, oxygen-based life forms. But like your point about the, you know, acidic vents in the ocean, like, you know, whether intelligent life could emerge from those conditions, maybe not. But, you know, the fact that different forms of life and very different radically you know, um, harsh conditions could evolve. Like, I think it's a much more dynamic universe than what we often you know, realize. Right. Yeah, me too. So, you know, in, in that kind of a context, none of this is hard to believe, right. you know. Yeah, and so then why the taboo? Like, yeah. why is it so shadowy, right? Well, because it deals with sex and deals with mind control and it deals with government secrecy and it deals with loss of autonomy. And it deals with a topic that would turn our world upside down, right? It, it deals with free energy and what that represents in terms of us moving away from a petrol-based economy, you know, like, holy smokes, like, you know, that would rock our world, right? Like if, you know, because one of the main implications of UFOs is that they're not fueled by, you know, the, the, the kinds of fuel we use on our planet. Like, they seem to be antimatter, anti-gravity, you know, um, you know, electromagnetic, you know, like they're using different modes of energy um, that allow them to move silently, to make very quick shifts and so forth. So, you know, just the energy implications, and this is one of the reasons why it's been so secret, right? Is that, you know, if we assume that we've recovered some craft, and there is every good reason to assume that's the case. I mean, when you really look at the evidence, um, if you just look at the work of Richard Dolan, 
right? One of the best kind of academic, you know, um, UFO researchers. He has a two-volume set. It's about to be three volumes that looks at um, the UFO and national security. And there are the massive tombs where he does the homework. He goes through all the declassified documents. He talks with all the military personnel and political folks. And, like, the case is very strong that we've come into possession of at least a handful of craft, and we've reverse-engineered aspects of that, right? And, and so a lot of people in the know claim that a majority of the craft that are seen are actually ours, right? So this raises a very interesting point. If that's the case, wow, like why is it our government or, you know, or the private sector, you know, corporate, you know, um, black budget folks have some of this technology that could be used for a lot of good, but it's not yet in the public, you know, space. Mm. Um, you know, so, you know, so that shadow because it, it, it will, it'll totally change almost every part of life and society as we know it. Mm -hmm. There's not a bigger game changer. In fact, one of the things that Richard Dolan says in his book, AD, after disclosure, like, you know, what's it look like, you know, after, you know, the world kind of comes to grips and, you know, there's some kind of, you know, non-deniable evidence. He basically says it'll be so earth shattering and transformative for society that there's a chance that we will change our numerical system for dating, for the, the life before disclosure and life before after right so that we would shift from using you know it would no longer be 2000 and you know 20 it would be one yeah right that it would have that level of a radical implication it would um, finally bring the republicans and democrats together <laughs> right well and this is the other thing you know ronald reagan you know and others you know political figures on um, presidents and, and and military folks have often made the case that you know that we would, you know, unite in a way that, you know, um, would be quite different from, you know, our petty wars. I think if evolution continues, we will. I mean, it's, it's yeah. like you know, every stage is inconceivable from the previous stage. Yeah. It's like, wow. Yeah. And, and we, think, we think that's going to stop? Right. So um, there is one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, and that is, and I think you, you mentioned it in some of the notes you sent me, that we could actually cultivate our receptivity yeah. to uh, these intelligences or what's going on, this bigger reality. Yeah. And we do it by uh, working with our, what you call our clairs. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. Great. Yeah. And, and this is kind of how I ended up going down this road is, and it comes back to this idea of multidimensionality that, you know, my practices in Buddhism and in Diamond Approach and, you know, in some of the other traditions I work in, I kept being drawn to cultivating um, different forms of, of senses that reveal the subtle realms, right? And if you just take the five senses, there's basically a, a subtle realm correlate to each of them. So for vision, it's, it's clairvoyance, right? The ability to, to see, um, for hearing, it's called clairaudience, the ability to hear, right? Um, you know, clairsentience is the ability to, to feel and sense, right? So, so one of the main things, and Dean Radin has done a lot of work around this, you know, the chief scientist at Institute of Noetic Science, and, you know, he's written a lot on the evidence around Psy, and, um, and the yoga traditions talk about the, um, the cities, which is the same thing, right? So there's a lot of, you know, most of the contemplative traditions um, talk about the cities and these capacities. Many of them, as I mentioned before, will say, you know, don't get distracted by that, you know, just focus on awakening, getting off the, the wheel of karma, you know. But if you pause and, and really work with those practices and exercises that begin to open up those subtle senses, it's basically, if you think of our material world is based on the five senses and what we can see, hear, taste, touch, and smell, right? And that's reality. Well, if and, and all of us have that, right? But not all of us have cultivated our five subtle senses. And there's actually a few more than five, but if we just use that as like an analogy, that to perceive, experience, and interact with these phenomenon, these realities, be they energies, be they intelligences, be they UFOs, be they certain kinds of gods and goddesses and archetypes, and you know, going to, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, you learn to go to the pure lands, you know, and to go to different bodhisattva realms, right? 
and lucid dreaming through astral travel where you actually get teachings, right? And in the Western context, it often gets played down as kind of a, a dream state. But if you really read the literature and those traditions, they're saying these are ontological realms that you go to in your subtle body yep. and you receive different, you know, teachings and then yep. bring that back into this um, yep. plane, yep. right? So, so there's a lot of ways of developing multidimensional awareness. And there's actually this great um, book by Kurt Leland. Um, I think it's called The Multidimensional Human. And he presents, he uses um, the four quadrants. He doesn't know about Wilbur, but they're the same four quadrants. Um, and he identifies a series of five or six um, exercises to do in each quadrant to develop subtle um, sensory awareness in that realm, right? So, you know, first person, second person, third person, right? So there's a lot of resources out there for people who want to cultivate um, their path, you know, in this way. And the last thing I'll say about this, Jeff, um, and then see if there's, you know, follow-up or other questions to explore is – one thing that really surprised me as I started exploring this literature is how many of the people who are, you know, good at these practices, um, how much they talk about the causal realm and non-duality. And that, you know, because it was almost as if I just assumed that the non-dual talk was really only going to be found in the, the Buddhist traditions and the, the Asian traditions and, the, um, and, and yet to find in our own kind of even, you know, Western esoteric tradition a very rich non-dual um, and causal mapping of phenomenon and awareness that if you go deeper into the developing these clairs, it leads you to unity. It leads you to non-duality. It leads you to an awakened awareness. And, and this was very earth shattering for me because so many of the other traditions basically say, don't go down that path because it's a distraction. But then as I went into them and discovered, well, that might be true in some cases, and I can appreciate the, the caution, but many of the people who are actually practicing in those traditions, they're on the non-dual train, right? Mm -hmm. And they're getting there through opening up their subtle senses, mm -hmm. um, that, that that's part of the integrated human being that they're helping to create a new template for. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's that same kind of thing that is keeping humanity from really turning and facing this squarely is that yeah. in a sense it's we're not ready it's yeah. too distracting yeah. you know there's the, there's a there's a stage in which that's true yeah you don't want to play with this stuff until you're ready and, and this, you know a lot of practices make us ready yeah and this is one of the other points that's made around contact that that as a human species we're not yet a galactic species we're not yet a multi-planet. We're, we're not even planet-centric. Yeah, and, but that we're now pushing into space. We're going to have a base on Mars and on the moon in the next 20 to 30 years. I mean, there's a lot of good reasons to think we're yeah. going to have, you know, um, something along those lines in place. So it's, it's hopefully it can be a catalyst and force us to develop the world-centric orientation that we need at a bigger global level because – many of the people report that part of why contact hasn't occurred on a bigger, more explicit level is because we're basically killing each other on this planet and that the, the benevolent beings that are out there that are ahead of us in this journey basically can't interact with us until we get our shit together and that we, we have to, you know, get to another level collectively um, before we can kind of enter into um, a galactic conversation with the intelligent races who have been there for thousands, you know, plus um, years, right? So it's an interesting time. consideration. Yeah. You think we'll get there? I do. I'm optimistic. I, but, you know, one thing that I've noticed, you know, is fragmentation and integration seem to go together. I used to believe that we were headed to an integral omega point, and at some point, we would outrun the fragmentation. We would outrun the xenophobia. We would outrun the tribalism. I, I think that's possible, but, but what I'm noticing is that they, paradoxically, they increase together, right? You know, and you see this with the Trump administration, right? You know, in the sense that, you know, Trump is, you know, arguably sexist, racist, you know, and, you know, and all these things. And yet you have the Me Too movement, right? Where you have, you know, more 
people coming forward and describing their experiences and, and key men being taken down, right? So there's this weird cosmic balancing act where it's like, you know, we couldn't have had the Me Too movement without Trump's craziness, right? And so there's some weird thing going on around kind of this, like, kind of large polarity dynamic. Yeah. Well, evolution is, uh, you know, beautiful, but not pretty. Yeah, it's messy. Since day one. Yeah. And, and, it, and that ain't changed. It's not changed yet. Yeah. So yeah. Um, we'll see how it goes. But, um, you know, I guess I'd say, uh, is there anything else, any other piece you want to put on the table that you think mm. would round this out? No, I think we, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, yeah, me too. I mean, there's a lot more to say. I mean, obviously, the course that I'm doing in September is, you know, um, you know three months of this kind of open-ended inquiry. Right. And, you know, I, I think- wanted to mention that again, and that's the Exo Studies Master's course. Okay. And it starts in September. And, you know, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so, you know, I, I realized, like you said in the beginning, like this is a course I've wanted to teach for a long time. And part of it is because I think it, it calls our best integral selves forward. Um, it calls, you know, the, the philosopher in me forward. It's like, a, you know, we get to grapple with like some of the biggest, most important topics and issues on the planet. And, and so I'm a big reader. And so I've read all this content and I wanted to find a vehicle to kind of give people the dummies guide, right? You know, to, to all of this, pull out what I think to be the best books in, in these 15 categories um, that I've identified. And part of the reason why I focus on exo studies is because I feel like we need to move a little bit away from the UFO ET framing. Even though I'm engaged by that framing, it's provocative, I think there's a lot of evidence for it. As I mentioned earlier, I think the phenomenon that are showing up in relationship to this is bigger and more mysterious than even that framing, mm -hmm. right? And so exostudies is kind of a differentiation from the UFO ET frame and basically says we need to back up, we need to create a, a meta science, a meta field um, that is able to look at lots of different kinds of data from a lot of different places and then try and understand the patterns. And so we're going to be moving through, you know, three main areas in the course. The, the first five weeks is focused on multidimensional awareness, right? And, and what do people report, first-person reports of, of these phenomenon, these experiences, both the, the terrifying and the transcendent. And then we spend five weeks kind of looking at the issue of, you know, um, the social taboo and cultural dynamics. So I'm basically I, we, it, right? You can see that pattern. Right, so five weeks kind of exploring the cultural aspects um, and then five weeks looking at more of the science, the, the exo on planet studies, you know, the astrobiology, you know, the, the number of sightings that have occurred, the physical evidence, the photographic and video evidence that's, you know, pretty strong, right? And so, and, and at the end, you know, we have a final week that's really looking at like, what does it mean to be a multi-planet species. Like this is where we're headed, whether we're there in 20 years or 100 years, we're headed that direction. So, so let's start to envision together, what does that mean? Like how can we participate in that in some way that you know, supports our own integral unfoldment? Um, you know, so it's gonna be a wild ride. You know, there are 36 books I've identified, two for each week. Um, people are not expected to read those books, I have, they can pick and choose which ones they want to explore, but I'm going to be a guide saying, these are the books I've read. This is what stands out to me. Here are the key issues as I understand it. Let's talk about it. Here are the best movies. Here are the best documentaries. Here's the best songs, right? So it's going to be a real kind of, you know, guide through the cultural, scientific, philosophical, psychological, existential terrain of what does it mean to consider that we're not alone? Wow. Wow. Well, fantastic. Uh, and you're really moving the ball. I mean, talk about integral. Jesus. Yeah. Right. <laughs> thing together. And I feel like in a new way. Yeah. Including, you know, your deep experience with the esoteric traditions and your philosophy. And I mean, um, wow, Sean, I think this is a worthy challenge for you. And I'm, I'm so happy. Yeah. Taking it up. Yeah. Thank you. Well, and you know, a big part of it has just been, as I mentioned, the conversations with other integralists who have said, yeah, I, let me tell you a story. 
And, and that made me realize like, wow, this is much more pervasive than I realized. Um, because many of these people were are dear friends of mine who I've known for 20 years and never would have guessed, right? You know, and so here we are in our isolated bubbles, you know, helping to, you know, bring integral to the world and we never had that conversation. And that just highlights the taboo nature, right? And so that's part of what I want to explore. It's like, why is it so shadowy? Right. Like, how can we do collective shadow work around this topic so we can help differentiate the big pile of BS and the big pile of evidence Absolutely. and have a better sense of which is which? Ah, uh, yes. Well, fantastic. Yeah. We all come out of the closet. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sean, S. Bjorn Hargens, so good to connect with you again, my old friend. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, really good to, to dive into this. And, and thanks for just your curiosity, you know, yeah. and, and inviting me on because, you know, I think that's what I'm wanting to cultivate. It's just an open curiosity and, you know, let's just mm -hmm. consider what, what might be and what's possible. So I really appreciate you kind of helping me kick off this new phase of my intellectual you know, exploration in a way that's very aligned with how I want to be in this process. Oh, I'm honored to do it. Mm. Yeah, I'm very turned on and very curious. And we'll, I can't wait to see how it goes. Yeah, great. And may, the, may the benevolent beings bless you and you <laughs> bless all yeah. of us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, everybody, for listening. See you next time. All right. Bye now. <laughs>